Acts chapter 3. Last week we saw the healing of a guy who'd been crippled his whole life right outside the temple. And today we're going to just pick up what kind of where we left off. In verse 11, Peter healed him. John was there. And he was walking. You know, and verse 11 says he was clinging to Peter and John. I can imagine that. <laughs> You've never walked, and all of a sudden you start walking, you're leaping. This is holding. Everybody's staring at you. Everybody knows you're the cripple. Everybody looking at you, talking, pointing. And he's just hanging with those guys. You ever been in a situation you didn't know what to do, and you just found someone you knew, and you just kind of hung with them? All the people ran together. That's part of it. To them in the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amaze, uh, amazement. Portico of Solomon's out the temple area as a porch. And they just they were just flocking. This was a, because everybody knew this guy had always been crippled. His whole life he'd been crippled. He'd never been able to walk. And they all knew that. And then, and then they healed him, so they were all there. And Peter, you know, Peter's good, good Baptist preacher. He did always use the crowd, he takes advantage of it. The only thing he didn't do was take an offering, but it's okay. He saw this, he replied to the men of Israel. That doesn't mean he was excluding women, it's just a phrase. Why are you amazed at this? Why are you gazing at us as if by own power of piety we made this guy walk? Piety. What? Why are you shocked that this guy walked? Well, because he was crippled his entire life. And no one has the power to heal crippled people. No one. But God. They did believe God could do it. And they believed maybe if God worked through someone. So, you know, they didn't believe these guys were gods. So the only answer, because they're Jewish, was that somehow God worked through these guys. And that was what was amazing. And so Peter's like, well, I don't, we don't know why you're amazed. He knew why they were amazed. It's just kind of a, a figure of speech. Notice what he says in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. So he's referencing the historic God. So notice what he's doing. Christianity is Jewish at this point. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament expectations. I've told, so all the, I tell you this all the time. The Old Testament is the book that promises something. The New Testament is the book that fulfills it. The Jewish faith that was originally intended promised Jesus, Messiah, that was Jesus. The Jewish faith wasn't God's primary plan. People think that and you get it wrong. Read the New Testament and get it right. The plan was always Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The plan is always the Messiah. He fulfilled all that was supposed to be there. And so they refer to the historic God of Abraham. By the way, as Jesus said, he still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they live. He's glorified his servant, Jesus. Can you imagine the concept of God glorifying a person? Because I can't. But Jesus, he did. And he gives the reason God literally is wise, his son. He says, by the way, this is, this is so classic of Peter. Peter does this all the time early on. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You, you delivered Jesus over to be crucified. He had already said in chapter 2, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. He's going to say it again and again and again. That is one of the central messages in the book of Acts, especially early on. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You gave him up. God raised him from the dead. Later on, it will be, he died for your sins. He died because of what you did, and God raised him from the dead. Never forget, Jesus died of his own free will, his freedom to choose. And he, his free will, he went that. But he also died because we were responsible for it. In the general sense, we're responsible because of our sins. 
in a specific sense, the Jews and the Romans were responsible because they killed him. And he said, he said, you did it. Pilate wanted to let him go. You don't hear that part very often, do you? Just think about it. They brought him to Pilate. Pilate didn't want to do it. But you pressured him so much, he did it. And it gets worse. You disowned, he says, the holy and righteous one. Calling him the holy one, the word holy means to be set apart. God is holy, only God is holy. The righteous one, the one that is morally just and pure. He said, and instead you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You condemn the one whom God glorified as holy and righteous, and instead you ask for the exact opposite, a murderer. Remember, those guys, the guys on the cross weren't just thieves. Bar- uh, Barabbas was one of them. They were, they were insurrectionists. They were murderers. You, I mean, thieves in our sense of the word. They were a thief in the sense that they used to be. They were murderers. And he, he, he says, you asked for this guy. That's no one wants to hear that, right? I mean, you don't want to come here and me to tell you how horrible you are. I don't want you to tell me how horrible you think I am either. But we do have to recognize we're sinful. You know, <laughs> part of the task that we have is to point out the fallenness of all of us. Now, I usually don't used a harsher terminology in as harsh a tone maybe that Peter's using, because I don't think that'd be effective in our generations today. Some preachers think it's effective, but they're usually at smaller churches, so that probably proves them wrong. (laughs) But you still have to point out that we sin, and you have to point out our rebellion. We cannot escape that. We cannot escape our sinfulness, and we cannot escape our culpability in the death of Jesus. Notice what he says. You put to death the prince of life. He's called holy and righteous one, the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact which we are witnesses. He says, you put to death the one that God raised back to life. You crucified him, God raised him back. And by the way, Peter says, and we are witnesses of that. I, 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 I hammer this home all year long, all the time. Every year I preach sermons about the resurrection of Jesus. And what I, and I preach constantly is that people saw him alive. People saw him alive. People saw him alive. It, it, it wasn't, you know, we sing the song, an empty tomb is there to prove my Savior lives. An empty tomb does not prove that Jesus lives. You understand, do not teach that the empty proves, tomb proves he lives. The empty tomb proves he's not in the tomb. Listen, my bank account's empty. That's all it proves is my bank account's empty. It doesn't, doesn't prove where it went. I know where it went but didn't prove it. The proof that he's alive is people saw him. They saw him. We preach a message about a man who was fully God, fully human, who died in our place on our behalf, who was buried and who was raised back to life, whom people saw. Sunday, I'm preaching from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58, primarily about, you know, you know talking about the second coming of Christ and the resurrected body. And it's in reference to the fact that people question the resurrection. Chapter 15 begins with this an amazing announcement by Paul about the gospel. You know, Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was raised back to life on the third day, 
according to the scriptures. And then he says this, and he was seen by Peter, the apostles, 500, me, James. People saw him alive. That's so important. And that's really important because early on when he's preaching to the Jews, their religious leaders said that these guys stole the body of Jesus. Remember, Peter and John have been accused by the religious leaders, whom they're going to appear before in chapter 4, we'll see that next week, of stealing the body of Jesus. They didn't steal his body. They saw him alive. It's quite a contrast. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know that the faith which comes through him has given this perfect health to the presence, in the presence of all of you. So it's on the basis of faith in his name. So we need, we need to make sure we understand. Too often there are people historically and even today who think that simply calling on the name of Jesus does something. Now, we don't look at the concept of name the way they did in the Old New Testament times. The name represented the character or the real, the real personality of the person. It represented who they were. So it wasn't just Jesus. It is the person, Jesus, and all that he did. When you, when you reference me and you call me David or whatever you call me, uh, private, some of you call me other things, you don't, you're, just, you're just identifying me. You're not really necessarily speaking anything about the character or the nature of who I am. But back then, that name meant that. And the problem today is too many people think if they just call on the name, mention the name of Jesus, that it has some magical or manipulative powers. That's paganism. It's what the pagans teach and preach and practice. That's what religions that are polytheistic believe, that you call upon the name, you invoke the name or whatever, whatever. I've heard so many people say, man, if you just invoke the name of Jesus, whatever, you'll be healed. It doesn't work all the time. You know, in fact, everybody dies sometime. So at some point, it ain't going to work for you. It just, it's not going to work. Unless Jesus comes again. It may work sometimes. I'm not saying don't pray for healing. I'm just saying understand, just invoking the name doesn't do it. And so it is on the basis of faith, on the grounds of, on account of faith. That faith the word faith is so important. So the word for faith is the idea of trusting, a commitment to, not just simply believing facts about or acknowledging, but it's on the basis of a commitment. So it's on the basis of trusting in the character and nature of someone, that is Jesus. So the basis of faith in his name is the basis of confidence, of trusting, of commitment in the person and work the name represents. Jesus. That's what it's all about. And so he says, on the basis of faith, because of faith, on account of faith, what happened? He was strengthened in, in, in the man you see. And that faith which comes through him, given this health and the presence of all of you. Now, the man had to have faith. We, sometimes the problem is, we, when we look at the, the healing in chapter 3, we don't ever see him saying, well, I have faith. But the assumption is, he did the fact that he stood up, even though Peter reached down. I talked about that last week. But Peter now is making sure we all understand this guy had faith. His faith wasn't just in that Jesus would heal him. His faith was in Jesus, period. And we need to understand, our faith is not in that we will be healed. Our faith is that well, Jesus will put us right where he needs us to be. 
Our faith is that we trust you, Jesus, no matter what. That's a hard prayer sometimes because we don't, we don't get taught that. But our, our prayer is, Jesus, whatever happens, I trust you on this. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I like you. It's okay. I've done that prayer many times. You know, Lord, if you, know, if you just ask me, hey, Dave, I owe you one. What do you want? You know, this is what I want. But mostly I just want what you want. Which is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, to the Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, your will, not mine. Because ultimately, we want what God wants. Sometimes, can I just share this with you? It's hard to want what God wants. It is. Because we don't understand things the way God does. You know, maybe if you give us a heads up of what was going to happen down the line. <laughs> it's not always easy to pray. God, whatever you want. It's easy to say it. But it's hard to mean it. It's what I want. And now, brethren, I know that you acted, I love this, in ignorance. Just as your rulers did. Now, under, this, this is steeped in Judaism. Now, last week, I, was, I, was, I talked about Paul telling uh, the Athenians that they had an ignorance, unknown God, there was an, you were ignorant. Here, that, that meant a general lack of knowledge of God. Here, the ignorance is different. It, it's, it's, it's to deal with, in Jewish lines, go back to the Old Testament, there were sins that people committed unknowingly and knowingly. Oh, there were sins of ignorance. That you did things that you didn't know or you weren't aware of, or you didn't mean to. And then there were the willful sins. So he's acknowledging that concept. So he is giving them the benefit of the doubt. He's saying, maybe you and the rulers acted in ignorance, but not anymore. No, no, no. But the things which God announced beforehand by his mouth of all the prophets in his Christ would suffer has been fulfilled. He said, I want you to know you may be ignorant, but you're ignorant no more. Because the Christ was Jesus. Everything that the prophets announced, whatever it was, he has fulfilled. And I think we should understand that even the ones yet to come, he has still fulfilled in the fact that you have what we call the future of certainty. That because the Christ fulfilled what he already did, and he's coming again, he has, in essence, already fulfilled them. Their fulfillment is certain. So whatever, whatever could be taken in the Old Testament, the prophetic word, whether you understand it to be referencing Jesus or not, he fulfilled it. So there, there are lots of passages that, if you just read them, you don't see them being dealing with the Messiah in any way. And then the New Testament says, oh, yeah, Jesus fulfilled that. I'm like, well, let me go over there. Well, okay. I can see that now. But when I just read through the Old Testament, I don't. I, so I'm doing, a, I'm doing a lot of reading the Old Testament as well, the New Testament, but the Old. And so, you know, I'll read things. You know, the other day I was reading there through something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know where in the New Testament that's fulfilled. I know where that's fulfilled. In a minute, in just a second, we're going to see him talk about the suffering of Jesus. And probably when, when they talk about the suffering, he's probably at this point alluding 
Peter is to Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, especially the last part of it, beginning with verse 42 and following, I mean, chapter 42 and following, there are pa- most famous being chapter you know, 52 and 53, there, uh, there are references to the suffering servant. Even back then, a lot of times they didn't know certain passages referred to the coming Messiah, but back then, I mean, before Jesus came, the, the rabbis, they all understood that, was, that had to deal with the Messiah. And so um, he's going to reference that as Jesus fulfilling that about suffering. He said, God announced all this beforehand. Therefore, verse 19 says this, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He says, repent. Faith and repentance always go together. They always go together. Repent and return. Repent. You, so here, sometimes we, I tell you, repent. You're going and you turn and you go a new way to follow. Here he says return. And what he means is this. Return back to God. You were God's people. You've strayed from that. So repent of your sin and turn back to God. And here's how you return through faith in Jesus. Turn away from the path you were on which rejected him. How do you know you rejected him? Because you crucified him. Turn away from that path. Turn back to the path you need to be on. And you'll experience refreshing, renewal. To the Jews, the concept of refreshing would have spoken. We would say more salvation or the renewal of life. And so that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you. He may send him into your life. Verse 21 says, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke in his mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So he can restore all things. So he can accomplish all that he wants to accomplish. So Jesus is away. He'll return. He'll return when he's accomplished the things he wants to accomplish, which was spoken of the prophets. And so we have, you know, this understanding, this reference to the idea that the time between the first and second coming of Jesus, things are being accomplished. That have always been a part of God's plan because all the prophets talked about. Now what's interesting is with all the prophets, our understanding of prophet sometimes is different than their understanding. And the prophet is one who speaks the mind of God. We think far too often simply about the guys who wrote books that were prophetic, and you add Elijah and Elijah in there. But numerous people are considered prophets, you know, in, in the Old Testament. Even Abraham at some point is referred to as a prophet. You know, Moses, we'll see in just a minute, you know, is a prophet. People who spoke forth the mind of God. Today, I think it's important because all people always think about a prophet today the prophet is the office of the one who proclaims the word of God or anybody speaking the mind of God at any point. It's not someone who tells the future. So we ask, what is the gift of prophecy today? And everybody thinks, you know, predicting the end times. Yeah. No, it's, it's what I, I have. That is what I do. I, I mean, I take the word of God. I speak it to you. I'm, I am fulfilling the prophetic order because I am proclaiming God's word to you. And that's what that is. So, Lots of people in the Old Testament proclaimed the word of God. And then he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18, in verse 22. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So Moses is saying, the Lord will one day raise up a prophet like me. And he is saying that prophet like Moses is Jesus. And in many ways, especially to the Jews, 
Moses was the prototype, or he was the foreshadowing of the Messiah. Think the parallels. Moses, out in the desert, rejected, tried to be killed when he was an infant by Pharaoh, comes, takes his people, delivers him. They rebel against him or they reject him, but he delivers him. Jesus tried to be killed by Herod, had to go to Egypt, wandering in the wilderness in Egypt for a while with his family. You know, comes back, delivers his people. There's, there's, that, there's, that, there's that parallelism that's meant to be drawn. The comparison is meant. Remember, he's preaching to Jewish people. He's not preaching primarily to Gentiles. This is not an effective message to Gentiles. It's an effective message to the Jews. So verse 23 says this, and it will be that every soul that is not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So if you don't listen to the prophets, this is pure Judaism 101. And, and bringing it to the Christian faith, because remember, they're still part of the Jewish faith at this point. They're still thinking of themselves as Jews. He says, if you don't listen to the prophets, you'll be destroyed. They all believe that. Remember, they all were taught that. So here is Jesus, a prophet like Moses, fulfilling the role that Moses predicted. The one they crucified. The one God raised from the dead. The one who suffered on their behalf. That guy is the one they put to death and God raised back to life. If you don't adhere to what he says, you, he says, will be destroyed. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. They all spoke about that. So here's what he says. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Quotation from Genesis 12, 3, and also in reference to Isaiah, Genesis 22, 18, only he takes the word families instead of in the original, uh, in the Old Testament, the word nations. So he's saying, God made a promise to Abraham. All the fathers knew this. All the world, all the families will be blessed through your seed. And seed is meant in a singular, which is Jesus. One of the things that I say all the time is that God's promise to, Gen to Abraham was not the nation of Israel. God's promise to Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him. His descendants... Isaac, Jacob called Israel, and those 12 tribes were the means by which God would bring about what he promised. But God, from the very beginning, promised he would save us through Abraham's seed. Now understand, if you say, well, I don't think that's what it says. Well, you're arguing with not me, but Peter, okay? Okay. I hear people all the time say, so that's not what it says, it's not what it means. Well, do you read the New Testament? Because sometimes I get the feeling people don't read the New Testament. Sometimes I think people read the Old Testament, and they read books people wrote about the Old Testament, and they come up with these whole plans and these whole theories and all these ideas and theologies and doctrines that if they just read the New Testament as it was written, they wouldn't believe that. I'm just saying, sometimes I don't know what else to say to you. If you don't think what I just said is true, you know how to be for me. This, Peter says this. 
you believe the Bible is God's word, and I hear people, well, I just believe the Bible is God's word, and Genesis says this. Well, I believe the Bible is God's word too, and in Acts it says this. We got a problem. I think you're wrong. Now, I say that a lot of things, not just about Scripture, but in this case. I'm just saying, he's telling the people of Israel everything you wanted that was promised to Moses and to Abraham. Jesus is it. The prophet, that's Moses. That's Jesus. The seed of Abraham, Jesus. For you first, get this. God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning everyone away from your wicked ways. He said, you first. You, 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 you're, you're the first group. Whether he means Israel as a whole or the people here to hear this first message, what he's saying is this. You have the chance right here, he says. He raised up his servant to turn you away from your ways of rebellion and be saved. I've never actually preached a sermon from that verse. I need to do that sometimes. That's a pretty good verse. He has come to his servant to bless you, to save you, to turn you from your sin. Now, remember who Peter's talking to. He's talking to these Jews who have flooded the temple area because this guy was healed. How did you do this? Jesus tells them. I mean, Peter tells them. I did it in Jesus. This guy had confidence and faith and trust in Jesus. That's how it happened. And here, who Je- this is who the Jesus is. He's the one you crucified whom God raised from the dead. You crucified him in your ignorance, but you can't do that anymore. Because when Moses promised a prophet who would be like him, that's Jesus. And when God promised to Abraham that he would raise up a seed to save the world, that's Jesus. And now you know who he is. He died for your sins. God raised him back to life. Repent and turn away from all that. And he'll save you from your sinful, wicked life. Now, that's the gospel message. And Peter preaches it in a form that's different than probably we're used to hearing, but a form that connects with his audience. And one of the great things, if you read the book of Acts and all these different messages, Peter preaches them and Paul preaches them. And, you know, and last Sunday I was talking about Paul in Athens. It's amazing how these guys knew how to, who, to consider their audience and how to take the gospel and shape it to connect with their audience. And it's not just crowds, but even one-on-one. You've got to know who you're dealing with. How do you convey the truth that never changes, the message that never changes, the Messiah that never changes? How do you, com- how do you uh, communicate Jesus as Lord and Savior and the cross to different people in different ways. Sometimes we're not successful in sharing Jesus. It's because we don't think about the people we're sharing him with and how we get that message to them. Peter does it in a very direct Jewish way. He appeals to Moses and Abraham, connects. Paul will do it in Acts chapter 17 to pagan philosophers in a different way. But you notice what they both refer to? It both of them it came back to the cross, to the resurrection. When all is said and done, the one thing you have to communicate is Jesus died on the cross for our sins, God's raising back to life, and you have to trust him. That has to be communicated. How you communicate it is not what's important. 
as long as it's, you know, it makes sense. You know, I want to qualify that because you may come up with some weird things. All right, well, next week we'll pick up on chapter 4. It continues as they go before the Jewish leaders. And uh, I'll see you all later.